I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God, sacred Scripture, but understanding it in the context of sacred tradition. Now, of course, we'd love to have you become part of the show, either by coming all the way here to Sweet Home Alabama and being in our studio audience like these folks have done. But if you're not going to do that, you can be part of the show by calling during the live program, which is at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. That only works in North America. Outside North America, you have to call country code 1, area code 205-271-2980. You can also send us questions or comments by email, writing to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com, or follow us and participate on the show on Facebook and YouTube. And we get questions from there, too. All right, so we are continuing on through the book I wrote on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and we'll take a look at how our Lord dealt with the blowback that came from the Pharisees after he healed the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. We'll also take a look and start looking at the uh, Jesus' response to the Roman centurion who wanted a healing for his servant. So, again, we're going through the book I wrote called Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee. And that is available at EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 52885. And it help you to follow along. So, we're still, we're about to finish up chapter 4 from that book, uh, The Healing of the Man with the Withered Hand. This is going through Mark, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And the third meditation on that passage is when Jesus heals and gives life, but his enemies conspire to kill. Okay? Very important these days in particular. So we'll start off with Mark chapter 3, verse 5, where it says, Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, first, why is our Lord angry? His enemies, the Herodians and the Pharisees, were plotting to do harm. They're looking to trap him, and they wouldn't answer a legitimate question about whether it is better to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? That was the question he asked them, and they won't answer. 
They are cowards who don't answer the question. Something that still goes on in today's world where people just won't take a stand and they try to jump around the issues rather than directly confront them. And so his response to their silence and the way that he deals with his anger. See, the Bible doesn't forbid anger. Keep that in mind. In fact, St. Paul quotes the Proverbs when he says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but sin not. Anger is a response that comes from frustration. And the question is, will you direct your anger to fix a situation or will you use it to augment your ego or to get back at people or something like that? You can use your anger right, righteously. How many times you parents are very angry with your children when they lie to you to your face? I don't know what happened to the ice cream as there's vanilla and chocolate all over their face. What do you mean you don't know? <laughs> it's on your face. And sometimes they'll try to get away with it. And they have to learn. You have righteous anger in, at their lying. Later on, you might go behind a locked door and start laughing because it's so funny what they try to tell dumb lies. But sometimes it's very serious lies. And you have to use righteous anger to direct the way you correct their behavior. That's important. In many other situations that using anger can be done very righteously. That's what our Lord does. He is angry because their own obstinacy, their obstinate hard hearts are antagonistic towards him. And you, they don't show any sympathy for the man who's suffering. That's what the issue at stake is. And they don't do anything to try to accomplish good for the poor man. They don't care about him. They care about catching Jesus. So he says in chapter 3, verse 5, to the man, Stretch out your hand. Now, this is something that is part of a pattern of what our Lord does. When he does many miracles, he asks people to do what they can do, and then he accomplishes what only God can do important pattern. So in this case, he says, stretch out your hand. What he asks him to, that's what he can do. Well, Christ will heal the hand. We see this same thing to the paralyzed man in chapter 2, verse 11, where he tells the paralyzed man, stand up, take up your mat, and go to your home. He doesn't say, I'll take your mat, I'll pick it up for you. No. You do that. 
but I'll give you the power to walk after your years of paralysis. He'll do the same thing when he multiplies loaves and fish. He'll say the blessing and give it to the apostles, but tells them to distribute it. This is a pattern. He wants us to do what we can, but he'll do what only God can do. To Lazarus, he does the same thing. He calls him forth, but he tells the people around to unwrap him from the bandages. You see the pattern? This is what our Lord does. And so oftentimes he wants us involved in it. And he wants us to cooperate with the graces he gives us. This is the response he seeks from us. And, you know, if, if we ask him to help feed a lot of people, we'll be having, for instance, with the hurricane uh, Ian coming, there'll be a lot of people in great need. And our Lord will help to provide the generosity in different folks, but then we have to go out and help open up homes and things like that. Okay? So, after this man is healed of his hand being withered, and he can use it, the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him. The Herodians worked for King Herod, Antipas. And the Pharisees were from the uh, synagogues. And they worked together on how to destroy Jesus. It would have been for the interest of both of them. And this is a very important thing. Um, that getting the political agents along with the Pharisees to conspire to kill Jesus. And isn't it that decision that makes it all the more poignant what the question he asked earlier in 3 verse 4, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They, he's trying to save a life and to do good. They seek to do harm and to kill. And this is very important because a lot of times we think, well, people will be sort of neutral. No, no. The forces of evil are not neutral. And so um, this is a, a very important thing that the conflict of Jesus bringing his kingdom, remember how he began preaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this entrance of the kingdom of God is not a neutral, this is goodness, coming into the kingdom of the world. St. Paul, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, speaks of it as the kingdom of darkness. And that it's not going to be a neutral response. Well, that's sort of nice. You know, some of these people would like to have the kingdom of God, and we'll just stay with the kingdom of darkness, and it'll be okay. No. They have a negative reaction. There's a hatred by the darkness for the good. And 
this is a conflict that occurs between Jesus, who is the source of life, the source of healing and forgiveness, versus those who plot death and destruction. And this goes on from Cain and Abel to the present. And we should ask ourselves, where do we see this taking place? I cannot help, as a matter of fact, I'm sort of burned about this, that a man who is protesting in favor of life across the street from an abortion clinic, and then a man who is for abortion and is there to sort of guide people in to get the abortion, says filthy things about him to the man's little boy and does it repeatedly over different weeks, but then comes too close to the one man's son and starts invading the boy's space. Now, this is a little boy. It's not a teenager even. It's a little boy. And what would any father, what should any father do is protect his son. That's what you're supposed to do from anybody who tries to show aggression to your child. And so he pushed the man away, and he didn't get hurt. And he even went to, you know, civil court, and it was, it was dismissed from court. But then, late last week, the FBI comes with 30 officers, guns drawn on a man with seven children at home and his wife. And what are they thinking? Guns drawn is dangerous. You have to be really careful with firearms that are live. And what do we hear today from the FBI? He said, well, we didn't send a SWAT team. They're answering a question that nobody asked. We didn't ask if you sent a SWAT team. Did you send 30 armed agents to a father frightening his children so that they're screaming on the porch at 30 officers coming against them? This is not neutrality towards those who are pro-life, is it? There's no neutrality here. And it is opposition and threat. And it's a threat to anybody else. That's one of the things. This, when we hear about bullies in the school, now we have bullies in the FBI. And this is something that has to be addressed. The president should be looking into this. Congress needs to look into this. Because this is not the first time we see this kind of show of force. The My Pillow Man is accosted to get his phone taken from him as he's just going to get some fast food place. Congressman has his phone confiscated, same kind of way. What is going on? kind of threats. This is, these are contemporary examples of the, those forces that are not in favor of life are not neutral either. They are definitely something that is in opposition.
And we have to pay attention to the way this opposition between uh, life and death goes on. What we have to do is ask our Lord how he wants us to respond to the circumstances that we have. How does he want, does he want to say, oh, well, you know, this is scary. I better just lay low and be quiet. Because, you know, if they're going after this guy with his seven kids and his wife, look, they could do that to me too. Yeah, I mean, they could. Does our Lord want you then to back down and just say, well, I better stay quiet? Does the Lord want us to say, well, you know, there are different political positions and I want to defend people's free choice to do whatever they want. That's what a lot of people think. Well, if somebody wants to have an abortion, I, I, you know, I'm just going to stand back and just, you know, let, let that be. This won't be room for neutrality. There's not, it's not time for that. And it's not going to be that they let you just be pro-life anymore. This is something that we see a, uh, clinics to help women who are carrying a child to get help. They're being attacked all over the country, but especially in places that still have abortion legal. Why are they attacking clinics to help women that want to keep their baby? And, you know, I know that sometimes even some of the uh, clergy and hierarchy, you know, say, well, let's just, let's not rile anybody up. Let's just keep, I don't think it's time for us to sit back. It's time for us to speak up and say, you know, we have to be in favor of life. And these are big issues. And we should end it with the prayer, soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. In these times, we need strength. And I have to be like Christ so that we would be for the ones who do what is good to save life and not on the side of those who would take it. We'll take a little break, we'll come back, and we'll take a look at another healing that our Lord did, uh, that of a centurion in Capernaum, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Now, just want to remind you that this coming Saturday, October 1st, will be the EWTN Family Celebration. We want everyone to join us this Saturday. 
uh, will be at the Phoenix Convention Center in Phoenix, Arizona. This is free, free one-day event. You can come and meet various great and favorite hosts like Doug Keck, Johnette Williams, Marcus Grodi, Father Pedro Nunez, and Father Robert Spitzer. In addition to your favorites, I'll be there. <laughs> so I'll be there to join you as well. You also have a chance to visit the Family Corner and visit, as well as EWTN Religious Catalog Shop. And of course, we'll have time to pray the rosary together, confessions will be available, and Mass being the pinnacle. The Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word will be leading us with that. So register, register and get more information. Simply go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration. And you can be there. We look forward to it. There you go. Looks like we're having a good crowd come anyway, you know, already. So just have a lot of fun with a lot of other nice folks. All right. Um, we are now taking a look at Chapter 5. And this is the centurion's request for a healing. Now we're going to look at this version from Matthew chapter 8. We'll take a look at the version in St. Luke. It's in Luke and in Matthew, uh, where the centurion makes his request for our healing for his servant. Uh, so let's take a look at that. Um, it's in Luke 7, as well as Matthew 8. All right, so here, keep in mind that um, when, uh, just to, uh, some background of it, it's going to be very much about faith. I want to really emphasize that element of this passage. Uh, it'll also be something about our faith in the Blessed Sacrament. But he, I like to think of this in light of John 3, 16. A lot of football fans, you know, highlight that. Um, you, they used to always show John 3, 16, uh, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the goal of our faith. Our faith is to accept from God the gift of eternal life. It's not just to believe so you can say, I believe, but you're also believing as a way to enter into this relationship with God, with the eternal God, and the goal that he has in us believing in him is that he will give us eternal life. It'd be as if, and we always have to be careful, I, I certainly get a number of uh, emails saying, you won from this or that company a big prize. And these are oftentimes fishing expeditions. They're trying to get you to click on so that they can mess up your computer and charge you money to get back control. But, you know, sometimes if somebody really did come up to you and gave you a million dollars and handed you a check uh, from one of those contests that are out there, you'd say, um, you know, no, I don't believe this, and you rip it up? Or do you say, I'm going to take this to the bank. If you believe them and take it to the bank, you get a million dollars. And if you don't believe them, you get some scraps of paper. 
that can't even write many notes on, not even post-it notes. So um, this is where faith you know, has a big effect, and we need to understand the importance of it. So we take a look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. As, Je as Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and cure him. So our Lord promises to come and cure him. Okay. Now, this entering into Capernaum, uh, to, if you go to Capernaum, you'll find out that only part of the city is well excavated. The, prop, the city of Capernaum is partly owned by the Franciscans. They had purchased ruins. It was just empty ruins. And the Franciscans purchased it from the Turkish government a long time ago, well, well before World War I. And then another part of the property is owned by the Greek Orthodox. And they have a, a pretty little church on their side, and then the Catholics have a, a, a church and also a Franciscan uh, uh, residence uh, on their side. And they've done a lot of excavation. The Franciscan property includes the synagogue and the house of Peter. But on the Greek Orthodox side, They've done some excavation, not quite so much yet, and they found a Roman bath. Now, yeah, so what that does is show us that there were enough Roman soldiers stationed there for them to have a Roman bath. Jewish people went to the ritual mikvah, a, a ritual, ritual bath that they would have you know, before worship and such. But the Romans had a steam room and a cold room and all that, a uh, lukewarm room uh, for different stages of their bathing uh, purposes. And that was a big part of Roman culture. And this shows evidence that there really was a centurion stationed in the town. A centurion was an officer. Originally it was supposed to be for 100 soldiers, but it was higher than what we'd call consider a sergeant. It was a significant officer. And the reason that they'd be there is Capernaum, as I think we talked about with St. Matthew, Capernaum was the last town in Herod's territory. If you go up the road around the lake a little bit, you come to the north branch of the Jordan River, and across the river would be the territory of Herod's brother, Philip, who was also a tetrarch. So um, this was uh, part of the Via Maris. And, you know, in this, they were able to uh, have some soldiers uh, on this Via Maris. Uh, you'll see that in the purple on this map that we have on there. And the, the, the Romans had a few soldiers there, not too many, just to make sure there were no brigands. You know, having law enforcement to prevent robbery is a very important issue, and it was an ancient issue. The Romans were very good at clearing out pirates and bandits. They did that a lot. So that you had to pay taxes, 
but it was safer as a result. So this all is giving us background on why the centurion would be in the town. Now, and at the outset, Jewish listeners might not be so happy to hear that Jesus helped a Roman centurion. That's the enemy, isn't it? You know, why would you do that? Um, and this would, uh, no, they're occupying our territory. But St. Luke gives us a little bit of a clue as to what's going on. In Luke 7, verse 3, it says, um, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they appealed to him earnestly, saying, he is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. So apparently, this centurion had picked up something about Jewish religion that was superior to Roman religion. He could, he could detect an excellence about worshiping the one God. And he built the synagogue. And if you go to Capernaum today, you'll see that there's a synagogue that's new, relatively speaking. You'll see there that it, uh, in the photograph that we, we have in the monitor that it is white limestone. But that's a late uh, development. That was the new synagogue built in the fourth century. Right underneath that pretty white limestone stone, there is a black basalt. You can see in this picture on the side. Look right below the white. And you see that it's dark stone, it's dark gray. That's basalt. That's the synagogue that was originally built by the centurion. And this other one came uh, uh, centuries later. So it's still there, and they still use it as the foundation for the synagogue. And you can walk all over that. I've prayed there many times myself. So it's really a pretty cool place. And because he obviously loved the Jewish people and their faith, they thought it was good. Now, we have to keep in mind that Jesus had said the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, as we talked about a few minutes ago. And our Lord perceives that this centurion's act of love for the people of Israel manifested faith. Very frequently, our Lord recognizes that an act of love is itself an act of faith. He might not have been able to put it into words. And a lot of the vocabulary of the Bible would be very strange to this centurion. But he acted in love, just like we see in Matthew 25, that whatever you do to the least of my brethren, you do to me. Our Lord recognizes acts of love as also implying acts of faith. And something that we should think about is uh, in regard to our own faith and how our faith in Jesus Christ affects our lives. How is this part of our life? Are we providing a kind of witness to faith? 
that shows itself in the deeds of love that we do for our loved ones, our family members, and for strangers. You know, is this, is this something we see? And do people ask you questions about why do you act so well? Why do you do the generous things you do? Does your good behavior provoke questions about your faith that motivates you to do it? John Wayne became a Catholic. The actor John Wayne became a Catholic because a nun was taking care of him in his cancer. He died of cancer back in 79. And he said, you're the first person in decades who's been nice to me and is not asking me for something. What makes you tick? That's an example of an act of love that provoked questions about faith. And just a couple days before he died, he accepted baptism. You know, that her generosity evoked that. And we want to see that people have different levels of faith and we should be careful that we don't come down harshly on those beginnings that, well, you don't have the full, you don't understand the whole catechism yet. You know, you're not a real good Catholic. No, ease up. Take the steps that they have and recognize that and help to develop the good that's already going on in them and bring it to, to more faith, as our Lord will do with this centurion. And then finally, I would ask you to do this as you contemplate this gospel. Put yourself in Capernaum, and especially as he asks this question. What would you think of this centurion asking for a miracle? Why? What would you think about the centurion going up to Jesus? What might he say to you about your witness, about how you react to him? Are you saying, well, he's just a Roman. <laughs> we can't help them. They're, they're oppressing us. How, what would he say? What, what, what kind of reaction would you have for, toward him? And I think... I, I'm always moved by this verse in Matthew 12, verse 20. It quotes from Isaiah 42. But in Matthew 12, 20, it says about Jesus that he will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick. In other words, people might be bruised and their faith might be smoldering. But our Lord helps to blow the smoldering wick back into flame, not snuff it out. He doesn't say, oh, that bruise, that reed is bruised, break it off. No, he tries to heal it. How do we react? Are we like our Lord or not? And this would be a good way to, again, conclude with the soul of Christ, the anima Christi, soul of Christ's. Sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood from the side of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me. Let your passion strengthen me, and within your wounds hide me. This would be a good way for us to conclude our meditation on that passage.
All right. Well, let's go to some of your questions. I'm going to start off with an email. Uh, this is from Luis in the great state of Texas, Texas. It says, hello, Father Mitch. My wife and I recently had a foreign exchange student come live with us for the year. My wife noticed that the young girl had a set of tarot cards on her study desk. We then looked up her mother's profile, and she lists herself as a clairvoyant with special powers from a young age and is a professional tarot card reader. The student is very kind, and we enjoy having her with us very much. Should we be concerned? I pray the rosary daily, and we live our Catholic faith. I have blessed the house with the holy water and the oil of St. Charbel. Um, what should we do? All right, Louis, you know, this is something you have to keep in mind. Her mother has taught her. I don't know what her mother ever heard about Jesus. And I don't know what, you know, this young person knows about the gospel. I would assume not much. I would assume not much. And so look upon her as someone you can evangelize. And, you know, I've said it many, many times. I really do think like a hunter. I don't go out there and just jump into the field and say, come on, dear, you want a piece of me? No, no, no. Instead, you sit and watch and wait and see the patterns and look for an opportunity. In fact, ask our Lord to open up a door to her heart because it's not just that you want her to say you're wrong for using tarot cards, which is true, it is wrong, but, you know, to ask, you know, uh, to the Lord to give you an opportunity to speak to her of how the truth about being human is going to be found in Christ. The truth is going to be found in the sacred scripture. Uh, if you, you might want to look up some Christian critiques of tarot cards and find out that 60% of all the possibilities in the tarot card deck is negative. That they project 60% of the time a bleak future. And by the way, tarot cards were only invented in the late 1700s. This is not modern. This is, you know, something that's, I assume it's not very old. It's, it's pretty, relatively modern. And, you know, it's, you know, certainly something sinful. But I wouldn't open with that. And, you know, just ask our Lord to open up the way to, to enter that conversation. And instead of focusing on her being wrong, start to focus on you being right. You know, if you go after a dog because it's got a nasty old bone, in its mouth and try to grab that bone, if you're lucky, the dog will only growl and run away. If you're not lucky, he'll bite you. But if you have a fresh steak, that mouth will open wide, the old bone will drop, and he'll start to drool. 
Similarly, instead of just attacking her tarot cards, look for opportunities to present the beauty and truth of the gospel. Let that be the fresh steak that you put in front of her so that she drops that old bone and picks up one that is good. That would be some ways to think about it. And talking to a Texan, you understand. All right. We'll be back in a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. We'll get more of your questions and emails, so look forward to that. And just want to remind you that on EWTN Live tomorrow night at 8 p.m., we will be talking with author Stephen Alth about how he found God and deepened his faith through an appreciation of Western sacred art. He'll also tell us about a unique spiritual tour of the great Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. He leads pilgrims on an adventure to look not only at the historic aspects of sacred art, but to look at the sacred art with the eyes of faith and to understand our life in Christ through that art. So it'll be pretty exciting. I hope you, if you like art, um, that, it's a great program to help you develop ways to meditate on art, not only if you're in New York City, but also with art you might have at home. All right, let's start off with a question we have in the studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm from Florida. Florida. Wait a second, you We're running praying. away? We're doing a lot of praying today. Yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. I'll bet. No, this, yeah, we have to keep uh, in mind you know, praying for the folks in Florida because this is a fairly dangerous hurricane, yeah. especially if it slows down and sits. That's very dangerous. That's what it's doing, they're saying that. Yeah, so, so keep, keep the folks in Florida very much in mind in prayer. And if you can find a place to put them, go ahead. Sure. So, okay, wait. so my question is, we were talking about the centurion, yeah. uh, his great faith that he had, and we mentioned that in our mass, that, Lord, I am not worried that you, that you should come under my roof. Mm -hmm. And um, once Jesus becomes, during your mass, when you consecrate the mm -hmm. transubstantiation, mm -hmm. when it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, mm -hmm. body and blood, mm -hmm. why is it that we're being refused the blood now, because yeah. I know they say excuse about, well, it's, it's flu season, and uh, that wouldn't bother me. I would right. do it at any time. Right. I don't believe that Jesus would hurt anybody. Right. And if you believe that's Jesus, I yeah. don't understand that. I, I think the reason for it is that there are bacteria on the chalice. You know, if more than one person drinks from the same chalice, I think there's a way to do it. That'll, that'll work so that you don't compromise uh, health. And that would be to give communion by intention, where the priest, because the lay people can't do this, has to be the priest who takes the, the body of Christ 
and dips it into the precious blood and then places it on the tongue. Now, there have been liturgists who object to that because if you give by intinction, then people cannot receive in the hand. And for some people, that's a very high value. Um, but uh, in the Maronite Rite, where I help out, you know, on weekends and, and such, that's how we distribute communion, is that we take the, the body of Christ, dip it into the precious blood, and place it on the mouth. I think that would be a way to maintain safety, you know, so that people are not receiving from the same cup and having their various bacteria on the chalice itself. Um, and because from what I've been told, uh, you know, after the precious blood is in the, the, the bacteria still are on the chalice. So, um, you know, to do it by intinction, and we priests receive it by intinction as well. We, uh, we take our host, dip it into the precious blood, and communicate ourselves, and then we communicate the others. That would be a good way to do it, and that way you wouldn't have to worry about people being, you know, concerned. And, but people would have to uh, agree to uh, either receive the precious blood and the body of Christ together, or if they prefer, and we, we allow this now, uh, because some people still are nervous about COVID, that we can give it to them in the hand, but they can't receive the precious blood. So that, that would be a compromise, okay? okay. The other question I have is uh, two of my friends have uh, recently passed, passed away. I'd like to know what's the difference between extreme unction and the uh, apostolic pardon? Great, great question. The extreme unction is a sacrament. If you remember in Mark 7, our Lord told the apostles to go and anoint the sick with oil. And then, of course, in uh, the letter of James, chapter 5, it mentions, call the priests and they will anoint the sick with oil. So, you know, it's, it's a biblical sacrament instituted by Christ to anoint the sick. The apostolic blessing is a sacramental so that uh, it is uh, uh, to remit, uh, you know, it, it includes a plenary indulgence. And it's as if the Pope were blessing them. The Pope gives a priest authority to give the papal blessing, that's the apostolic blessing, uh, on someone if they are dying. It's not, normally we don't, we can't do that. But that's, that's uh, the difference between a sacrament and a sacramental. Okay? All right. And uh, let's see. Oh, this is an interesting email from Maria in Spain. Father Mitch, why do priests and rabbis wear black? Does not the book of Revelation speak of those washed with the blood of the Lamb, all wearing white? This question was given to me by an unbeliever, and I fear she might be in the New Age or similar, wearing all white herself. We, uh, the Catholic clergy, have been wearing black since at least the second century A.D. to show that we're not trying to um, be very fancily dressed. It's a simple uh, way to dress. Um, I oftentimes say, my mother's dead. I don't have a wife. This is one way to make my clothes match. 
I don't have a lady with a fine sense of taste to show me how to dress. This, everything matches. So, <laughs> but <laughs> that's not the real reason. The, um, it's just an effective uh, re uh, aspect of it, an after effect. And the, the idea of wearing black, because in those days, almost everybody did wear white. But, you know, that'd be just from uh, white uh, uh, wool. But clergy wore black to make themselves distinctive and to not be, we, be wearing fancy clothes, but simply to have a, a simple, simple form of dress, a simple code of color, that's all. It's just like, you know, police have a uniform, firemen have a uniform, you know, nurses have uniforms, doctors, you know, and it indicates, you know, you're on duty. Okay, that's, that's, you're on duty. All right, then we also have an email from Susan in Lutz, Florida. Again, want to pray for all those folks. Says, hi, Father Mitch, in learning more from many people, including Hugh Owens at the Colby Center in the, for the Study of Creation. I find that the church has never believed in evolution, and the popes have agreed that the Bible is historically, scientifically, and spiritually accurate. If this is the case, then I thought the world is only about 5,000 years old, 3,000 from creation to Jesus, 2,000 years since. I'm wondering why it is that you had mentioned on last week's show a, a, a road from the Stone Age that is 12,000 years old. Well, because archaeologists have evidence of it being used by people who lived 12,000 years ago. Now, in terms of some of your uh, uh, assumption here, you know, the, the church, if you take a look at um, the Divino Afflante Spiritu, uh, you can go to our website, EWTN.com, and download that encyclical by Pope Pius Twelfth. And in there, he talks about how we do have to understand the scripture from the way that people of those times used the, the text. You know, their understanding of things in the text and their understanding of images and such. Okay, so that, that's one thing. Also, take a look at another encyclical by Pope Pius XII called uh, Humani Generis, Humani Generis, which is about human origins. And, you know, the, the church doesn't teach uh, and propose evolution, um, but it doesn't you know, give a prohibition of certain aspects of human development and that we have to pay attention to some of the things in science. For instance, you know, carbon-14 is not super precise, but it gives you pretty good dating of a variety of things, um, you know, within sometimes a few years, but you know, this is why we talk about Homo sapiens being around for, and that's our species, Homo sapiens, the descendants of Adam and Eve. A, coming from one woman, that's, and she didn't do it by herself. 
uh, so that the human race comes from one individual woman, the change in her genetic code uh, that is traceable by scientists in the, in the genome project. And also, it's, um, you know, that, that Homo sapiens is 300,000 years old. Um, and, you know, that carbon-14 dating plus getting the genetics, you know, there's, there's some genetic material from Neanderthals that are available to us now. Uh, it's, it's really remarkable. What, and so it's, it's very possible to point out that things are used by people in Jericho a good 11,000 years ago and then Byblos and Lebanon and, and uh, other places. So that's, that's datable. Um, and I think it's important to pay attention to that and see what we can learn from it. All right. Well, Lord bless you all and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. May he lead you in all of your ways by his peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we ask you as always to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill because we don't sell advertising and such, and we don't make any money that way. Our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to trust you to be the ones that his generosity flows so we can pay our bills. God bless you. Thank you.